I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And how exactly am I able to communicate with you? Because we're not in the same room. We're likely not even in the same state. And if my download stats are accurate, 30% of you hearing this right now live in a completely different country. So how did we get here? What makes the world modern, technologically, socially, morally, is often underappreciated. But the history of the modern world is a history of progress. Our guest this week believes that understanding that history is key to empowering the next generation to progress even further. Jason Crawford is the founder of The Roots of Progress, where he writes and speaks about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. He's currently working on a book about the discoveries and inventions that created industrial civilization and gave us our modern standard of living. Previously, he spent 18 years as a software engineer, engineering manager, and startup founder. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, it is great to have you. Now, to kick us off, The Roots of Progress became a 501c3 nonprofit organization in 2021, but it started in 2017 as a side project you did in your free time alongside your career in the tech industry, what you called at the time, not much more than a blog. So I'd love to learn a bit more about the turning point that happened in 2019. Tyler Cohen and Patrick Collison's call for a Science of Progress in Atlantic magazine helped spark that turn and also the coalescing of what you've deemed a progress community that turned the roots of progress into your full-time job in October of 2019. Yeah, that's right. So a couple of things happened all at once uh, right around that summer. So the first thing that happened actually was I had uh, one of my first uh, sort of uh, viral breakout hits in terms of a, a blog post of mine that went viral. And that was actually on the history of the bicycle, posing the question of why did we wait so long for the bicycle? Why were bicycles not invented until sort of like the late 1800s, when on the face of it, you might not obviously see any reason why we couldn't have had them in, say, the Roman Empire. And so I, I explored that question, wrote a whole essay about it. And then that got very popular and really started to grow my mailing list. And so all of a sudden, I had a, a you know a much bigger following than I had had just a, a week earlier. And then literally two weeks after that essay came out was when Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collison had their article published in The Atlantic that you just mentioned, Why We Need a New Science of Progress, in which they coined the term progress studies and called for you know more attention to be paid uh, to progress. The, the basic idea was scientific, technological, and industrial progress has been immensely valuable for human life. We should study it more to understand how it works and make sure we can continue to get more of it, maybe even faster than we've gotten so far. And that article, you know, being put in a, in a broad, uh, well-known publication, The Atlantic got a lot of attention and really galvanized a progress community. And so now progress studies was originally proposed, the term was proposed as kind of like a field of study, almost a, a, like an academic interdisciplinary field. But what it's become is an intellectual movement around this basic idea that progress is really good, it's really important to humanity, it's also something that is at least partially, significantly within our control, and so let's learn more about it so that we can, you know, make more of it happen. Before we get on to the topic of how we define progress, I'd love to just take a minor detour here because I'm selfish and it's my podcast <laughs> about the history of the bicycle and why, for instance, it wasn't developed in ancient Rome. Because it is interesting to look back at those periods, right? I remember there was an essay I read of yours 
I think I'm recalling correctly, in which there was a discovery of basically what could almost be considered a computer in ancient Greece. And it seems like there were big technological leaps in certain aspects of life, but they weren't happening in a linear fashion across all axes. So what was it about ancient Rome, for instance, or other ancient, very advanced civilizations where they didn't develop something like the bicycle while they had many other incredibly advanced technology for their time? So to answer these questions, I like to go into the specific history of the thing, right? So you can speculate about the bicycle. And when I posed this question on Twitter originally, many people did speculate that, oh, maybe it was because roads weren't good enough, or maybe it was because people were okay with horses, or maybe it was, you know, this or that. And so, uh, you know, to answer these questions, I just dug into, like, literally, how was the bicycle invented? Like, what sort of stages did it go through? So it turns out that for hundreds of years, you know, people were kind of thinking about and speculating about self-powered, like, human-powered vehicles, right? Something that wouldn't have an animal or a motor or engine, but would just be powered by the human. But most of the early kind of concepts and sketches and even prototypes of this type of vehicle were of a large four-wheeled carriage, essentially, And um, these vehicles were basically just too large and heavy, especially with the materials that were available at the time, like heavy, you know, cast iron. They just weren't going to be practical as human-powered vehicles. A key breakthrough was instead of doing a large four-wheeled carriage, just do a small two-wheeled vehicle that a single person can sit in and can sit on and ride. And that was invented around, I forget the exact date, 1816 or 1817. And the very first bicycle didn't even have pedals. So it was like the children's kind of like kick bicycles where you basically your feet would reach the ground and you would just have to kick along the ground and then you could lift your feet up in order to coast. But that was all that, that there was. There was no way to pedal the bicycle forward. It wasn't until decades later, I think in the 1860s or so, that somebody actually put pedals on the bicycle. But when they did put pedals on, they attached them directly to the front wheel. And the challenge with that is you don't get a lot of leverage, so you can't shift gears, right? It's like you're on a fixie, and it's actually a relatively low uh, sort of like gear ratio. You know, you couldn't get a lot of power out of that. The other challenge was that given the materials that uh, folks had at the time, these uh, bicycles had a lot of, they would shake. It was not very good shock absorption at all. So uh, they didn't yet have rubber tires, let alone inflatable tires. So the tires were made of like iron or wood, uh, maybe with uh, like iron rims. And one model around the 1860s was called the bone Shaker. That's just what it was like to ride one of these things, especially over the streets at the time, which were not very smooth paved. A lot of them were like cobblestone uh, roads. So both of these problems, the mechanical leverage that you get pedaling and also the the shock absorption were solved uh, temporarily by making the front wheel a lot bigger. And this is where you got the ridiculous looking uh, design that's sometimes known as the penny farthing, where you got this wheel that's like, you know, several feet in diameter, this huge front wheel, and the cyclist is perched like way up high. Um, So that solved these problems. But of course, it created a new problem, which was safety, you know, difficulty of of riding the thing. It took acrobatic balance to ride. And then if you if you took a spill, you were going you were falling from quite a height. So eventually, the modern design evolved. And in the 1880s, this was known as the safety bicycle, because that was its distinguishing feature versus the penny farthing. So in this model, the pedals are not directly connected to either wheel, they're in between the wheels, and then via a chain and sprocket, they're connected to one of the wheels. And then you can even, you know, shift that even gives you the, the opportunity to shift gears, potentially. Around the same time, or late 1880s, the pneumatic tire was invented. So now you got you had rubber tires, and then even better inflatable rubber tires. And so that helped with the shock absorption. And so these things so by the late 1880s, 
80s, you get the sort of recognizable modern bicycle. So a couple of lessons that I take out of this. So first off, design iteration. The correct design for the bicycle was not obvious, right? People wasted centuries trying to make the big four-wheeled carriage. And even once they had the two-wheeled design, it was what? About 70 years of design iteration uh, to go from the very first no-pedal design to the modern, you know, the quote-unquote safety bicycle. And then the second big lesson, and I didn't stress this quite as much in the original essay, but I would stress it a little bit more now, is uh, materials and manufacturing techniques. So the 1800s, when all this design iteration was happening on the bicycle, was also a period where manufacturing techniques were being completely transformed. Our ability to make things uh, in factories and to make them out of high quality materials consistently and with precisely fitting parts was completely different in 1800 versus 1900. And so we were able to, through the development of machine tools, we were able to make much more precise parts that allows you to manufacture cheaply uh, a chain and sprocket that actually fit together. We also developed things like wire spoke wheels, cheap steel instead of having to make things out of iron, which is which is uh, you know lighter for the same amount of strength uh, steel is. Hollow tubes, again, uh, which helps make the thing lighter and so forth. So there were all these kind of materials and manufacturing infrastructure where it was really probably impossible to manufacture a quality bicycle cheaply in you know the, the very early 1800s, and it had become possible by the late 1800s. So those are the two, I would say, biggest kind of proximal reasons why we didn't get the bicycle you know sooner than the 1800s. In the essay, I go like a little bit beyond to say, like, why was nobody even experimenting with the very crude versions, you know, much longer, earlier than the early 1800s? Why was nobody experimenting with the self-propelled carriages until, I forget, the earliest sketches are like the 1400s? And there, I kind of go on to speculate about maybe some broader societal and economic causes. Maybe we need a certain amount of basic wealth surplus uh, in order to, you know, to have any kind of surplus to invest, you know, in research and development. And maybe there needs to be a certain kind of cultural milieu that favors invention, right? Um, maybe the very idea of invention or or progress was not around. And indeed, it was not. The modern era, I think, is much more conscious of the possibility for invention and progress than, you know, people were before, oh, I would say about, you know, the 15 or 1600s. So those are maybe some of the deepest and longest term causes. That's a really insightful answer. And we'll get to that last bit that you said a little bit later in our talk. But before we get to that, it, it does seem like a big part of what prevented, say, the bicycle from coming about until it did. It seems kind of similar to how literacy rates didn't really begin massively improving until the printing press was invented. It's like because books were so time intensive to make because they had to be written by hand, they couldn't be distributed in a very wide fashion until there was some kind of automation that enabled bookmaking to become much easier and less labor intensive. And it seems in some respects, the bicycle was kind of limited in, in similar ways that mass producing the bicycle, setting aside the need, of course, for a philosophy of progress at the time, mass producing the bicycle would have been impossible in, say, ancient Rome, because they simply didn't have something like the Industrial Revolution. And so if you can't mass produce a thing, maybe you can't even get in the right frame of mind in order to think about it. Am I in the right ballpark there? I think that's definitely a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other thing you, you mentioned literacy, you know, printing and literacy sort of went hand in hand, they reinforced each other. But you know, as late as the as the 1800s, which was, or even I think I'm trying to remember sort of when the, the literacy rates really started um, going up, as late as the 1800s, literacy rates were generally pretty low, you know, even though this was centuries after the printing press, and a significant part of that was because people just didn't go to school for that many years. There are a lot of people living on farms, right, a huge proportion of the population is living 
living on farms. They may or may not have a good school near them. And also it was just, you know, it was very common for sort of kids to get pulled out of school at a young age to help work on the farm or, you know, otherwise work to, you know, to earn money and, and, and bring in money for the family. So just increasing per capita wealth which fundamentally comes from labor productivity, which which comes from the Industrial Revolution, that allowed high school completion rate to, to increase and literacy rates to increase. So again, that just speaks to the wealth surplus, right? The more just kind of excess wealth we have around, the more we can put it into things that don't have an immediate payoff, but maybe have a long-term payoff like research or like education. Thank you for going on that detour with me. That's really fascinating about the bicycle. So to kind of loop back to the very idea of progress, right? I think to kind of help onboard our audience, how would you specifically define progress? Because I think depending on who you ask, progress could be defined in a number of ways, depending on what you're looking at in society, whether it be GDP, technological progress, moral progress, etc. At the core of it, when we're speaking about progress throughout this discussion, and if people go to your website and want to learn more, how would you personally define progress? The broadest and deepest definition is simply that progress is anything that helps us live better lives, longer, happier, healthier lives, uh, lives of more choice and opportunity, lives of thriving and flourishing. That is kind of the deepest definition based on a standard of human well-being. Now, sometimes when we say progress, we're talking in a more narrow sense of the progress that most consistently and obviously happened over the last couple of centuries. And that is more scientific, technological, and industrial progress. You might maybe summarize that as material progress, right? Understanding and being able to control and command the material world. Now, I think these things go closely hand in hand, but they are certainly not identical. And one of the important questions for the philosophy of progress, which I have, you know, creating such a, a philosophy for the modern world is, is my goal. An important question is, to what extent those two do go hand in hand? Does material progress uh, represent, you know, true progress for humanity, for human well-being? And, you know, and how and, and in what way? Okay, so let's dig into that a little bit deeper. How can we know in the 21st century, when we're making progress at a reasonable clip versus when we're stagnating. You talk about this in your articles, A Dashboard for Progress, and the other article is Progress, Stagnation, and Flying Cars. But I think what can warp the average person's view, and I include myself in that crowd, of technological progress, just to kind of make it a little thinner slice, let's just focus on technological progress, is that our expectations are set by past predictions, which are often inaccurate markers. So then, when we don't see the progress that is happening that we were promised, let's say 50 years ago, we then feel disappointed in the modern times, but that can blind us to progress that we couldn't have predicted. So one example to pull from that second essay is the flying car. In the 1960s, you couldn't come across a futuristic show or movie or predictive magazine without seeing a good-looking family of four flying along at a clip in a modified sedan. So when we look around today and don't see that, I think it's easy for people to feel disappointed or feel as though we've stagnated. But on the flip side, there's technologies that weren't being trumpeted back then that we have now, like mRNA vaccines that are being tested as potential cures against diseases like malaria, cancer, and HIV. So how do we mark progress accurately? How do we know when it's happening at a decent clip? And how do we keep our expectations from becoming too biased by previous predictions? 
my most relevant essay on this is called, I think, just technological stagnation. There are a couple of ways to measure progress and to answer this question of has progress slowed down. There are quantitative ways and qualitative ways. So quantitatively, we can, uh, you know, the, the metric that people almost always fall back on is GDP and GDP growth. And it's a problematic metric in many ways. Any metric is going to be problematic, but it's it's one of the best ones we have. GDP growth has slowed a bit, you know, in the last um, 50 years or so, you know, come, it's been kind of slowly decelerating. You can look at another metric called TFP, which stands for total factor productivity. And this is basically, okay, looking at GDP growth, we know GDP growth can come from a few places. If we invest more in capital, like, you know, building more factories, we're going to be able to build more stuff. If we hire more people, you know, or, or train them more, we know they're going to produce more stuff. And so if we take GDP growth and then subtract off what we believe can be attributed to capital investment and to, you know, labor, including sort of labor quality like education, then what remains? The amount that remains, the residual is called a total factor productivity, and it's generally thought to represent technological advance, right? If we're getting more output per, you know, unit of capital and labor, then it, it must be some technology leading to increased um, productivity. And TFP uh, has also uh, decreased in, in recent decades versus, say, the middle of the 20th century. So you can look at these quantitative factors and they kind of, they point, in my opinion, not absolutely, you know, knockdown argument because the effects are subtle, but they do point to a slowdown. I got a little more convinced when I stepped back and looked at it a little more qualitatively. So I was skeptical for a long time about this idea that progress had slowed down for some of the reasons that you said, you know, if you just look back at the last 50 years, man, a lot has changed, right? The entire, almost the entire computer revolution, the entire internet revolution, the beginnings of, you know, genetic engineering, uh, you mentioned mRNA vaccines, and that's, you know, that's really just the start. And there's all these, there's all these things that just seem like, you know, wow, we've actually come a long way. But then I started reading about just the general history of technology. And when you read about, you know, the similar, a similar period 100 years earlier. So look at the period between 1870 and, and 1920, right? So like a 50 year period ending about 100 years ago. The number of just fundamentally revolutionary developments happening is, is quite staggering. I count roughly five major revolutions. So one would be electricity, the light bulb and electric motor and generator all invented during that time period and the, and the grid started to get built out. Two is the internal combustion engine and going along with that, the sort of rise of the oil industry and then the, the vehicles based on that, the automobile and the airplane got invented in that period. Three, let's say the revolution in electronic communications represented by the telephone and the radio, which I think uh, on their own are sort of as big as like computers and the internet. Four, a revolution in applied chemistry that got us things like synthetic fertilizer uh, through the Haber-Bosch process and the first synthetic plastics in the form of Bakelite. And then five, a revolution in public health based on the new germ theory that was developed during this time, which gave us things like food pasteurization, you know, and, and, and milk pasteurization and better water sanitation techniques and even public health education about domestic hygiene, all of which led to, you know, rapidly dropping rates of infectious disease. So there, that's five major revolutions across every sort of aspect of the economy. And when you look at the, the last 50 years, you know, you when you stack up what are the kind of major industry transforming things that we've had, it's mostly computers and the internet. In other words, it's mostly kind of limited to one sector of the economy. And, you know, maybe I would count about half a revolution in sort of genetic engineering, which has 
begun, but, you know, has not yet really finished. I mean, it's not, it feels like we barely scratched the surface of what we can do, you know, and, and hopefully will do in the coming decades with genetic engineering. So that was what really made me realize that that the last 50 years or so seemed to have slowed down a little bit since the heyday of kind of late 19th and early 20th century. To be clear, I think progress is still moving faster than at any time before the Industrial Revolution, just not quite as fast as it was about 100 years ago. And to answer your point about, oh, maybe people are just kind of looking at these arbitrary, fanciful predictions, you know, like flying cars that people made a while ago and just judging things by the fact that that didn't come true. I don't think it's just that. I mean, so one, because of everything I've just outlined, but two, you can look at, you know, much less arbitrary and fanciful and much more basic and important uh, technologies that not only were predicted to happen, but were about to happen or, or started to happen and then flopped or failed somehow. So the number one biggest one is nuclear power, which in the you know late 60s and very early 70s was on track to provide, you know, something approaching 100% of world electricity usage today. And instead, it produces about 10% today. So it, it really stalled out and plateaued. That was a, you know, a sort of promise that failed. Another one is air travel. So where's our supersonic passenger jets, right? We had them for a while. We had the Concorde for about, what, 40 years. And it never became affordable to the masses, right? It never it became anything other than kind of a luxury or a bucket list item. And then it was grounded. And now we don't even have that anymore. Or you look at manufacturing and construction, you know, major areas of the economy, like what fundamentally is different about those things in the last 50 or 60 years? Obviously, lots of incremental improvements. Incremental improvements are great. We shouldn't discount them. But you can only get so far in incremental improvements alone. You need a fundamental revolutionary improvement every once in a while, uh, every generation or so in order to to really keep progress moving. Otherwise, you're going to plateau. And so I think in manufacturing, construction, transportation, and energy, these major sectors of the economy, we just kind of haven't seen you know, these major revolutions. So that was what ultimately got me to, uh, you know, come around and now agree with this stagnation hypothesis. Yeah, the unforced error we made around nuclear power is something that if I'm not careful, will keep me up at night. I agree with you, Jason, and pretty much everything that you said, but I want to play devil's advocate for the sake of seeing where this goes. So when you talk about how we went through in the 20th century, a lot of pretty revolutionary innovation, whether it was the airplane or the highway system, or a bunch of other you know, innovations that happened in the physical world that really improved our quality of life. I'm wondering how much of that kind of similar innovation is happening now, but we can't see it because we're not looking in the right spot. Let's say, for instance, we had in some completely alternate weird reality, we ignored the land and focused on the ocean, right? So for the last like 200 years, we just had total blinders on and we didn't look at what was happening on land at all. So we were just looking at the water. And from 1800 until 2022, we were just looking at the water and we're like, wow, there has been so little innovation over the last 220 years. The ocean, you know, maybe it looks a little dirtier, a lot dirtier in some places. But aside from that, it seems like there's been very little, if any, innovation happening on planet Earth because the ocean today looks very similar to the ocean of yesteryear. So I'm wondering, and the reason I make that somewhat ludicrous <laughs> <laughs> sounding comparison is perhaps in some ways the physical world has become the ocean for many people and the digital world has become the land. And what I mean by that is if we look at the progress that's been made, let's say just in terms of infrastructure and innovation in the digital landscape where people are spending 10, 11, 12 hours of their day, there's been a lot of infrastructure and innovation that's been happening there that you could say is analogous to what was happening in the 1950s and 60s in America regarding transportation, right? So getting around the internet, whether it's been fiber optic cables, or 
even if it's just like literally how we move about the internet when we're basically getting from website to website, whether it's being able to access it on our phones or just how much better websites look, move, feel in 2022 than they did in, let's say, 1999 in the age of GeoCities and little construction gifts, right? So you could say that the infrastructure and innovation that's been happening in the place where we actually spend the vast majority of our time in the same way that humans spend the vast majority of their time on land and not in the ocean. If we're spending the vast majority of our time day to day, and I'm speaking only of really the developed world today, online, and again, just as a devil's advocate here, if we're looking to the physical world for markers of innovation, are we looking in the wrong place? Because I would say that the internet in many ways has been making the kind of innovative and infrastructural progress over the last 20 years that might have taken hundreds of years if it was existing in the physical plane. Does that make sense? I see what you're saying, but I don't buy the argument. When I look at the transformation of the world that's been wrought by computers and the internet, it's enormous. It absolutely counts as you know one of the major technological revolutions in the entire history of technology. But again, between 1870 and 1920, we got both the telephone and the radio, right? So we had both uh, sort of a new way of doing point-to-point, you know, person-to-person, real-time conversations, and then also a new broadcast medium. And, you know, those things also (laughs) really transformed life. And, you know, radio became a new, and then, you know, television, which happened a few decades later, became a, a new thing that where people were now spending, you know, a lot of their time on it and so forth, just like the internet. But again, in that period, we not only had the revolution in communications, we also had like four other revolutions going on at the same time in every other part of life. And yes, it's true, we spend a lot of time online now, or at least a lot of us do. But we also, we spend 100% of our time in the physical world. And we're still physical beings, we still need to eat atoms, and our bodies are made of atoms, you know, and we still want to travel for, you know, lots of reasons. We still need physical comfort. If you think about a lot of the problems that we have not yet solved yet today, the open challenges, they're in things like health, and building enough housing for everybody affordably and, you know, and so forth, right? So I think that if you're narrowly optimizing one part of life, the digital part of life, you're going to hit a point where it's just not your biggest problem anymore. To continue making life better, you need to be improving life across the board, or else you're only solving problems in one domain and and your biggest problems remaining are going to be outside that domain. We spoke a bit at the beginning of our conversation about how the Roots of Progress became a nonprofit organization officially last year. And you announced it in an August 23rd post on the website. In that announcement, you wrote, quote, the Roots of Progress is working towards a world in which the idea of progress is communicated through education and journalism, creating industrial literacy among the public, a world with a positive vision of the future embodied in optimistic sci-fi and new world's fairs, a world where young people see progress as a meaningful career and where new organizations for science, research, and development give them the career paths they need to build the future, end quote. I'll link that essay and the one that you have exclusively about this topic, which you referenced earlier, in the show notes for those looking for a deeper dive with accompanying citations, of which there are many. But to you, what does industrial literacy mean, and how can it be better fostered among the public? Industrial literacy is is a term that I coined to mean a basic knowledge and understanding of the technologies and the infrastructure and so forth that makes the modern world possible and gives us all our standard of living. You know how people sometimes say you should know where your food comes from? 
They mean that in a sense, it sort of implies a kind of distrust of, of industry and, you know, the food supply chain. And it implies that maybe we should be, you know, you should be getting your stuff from local organic farms or whatever. But it's funny. I take that to heart. Yeah, you should really know where your food comes from. And to know where your food comes from means understanding the role of synthetic fertilizers and how they are responsible for about half the world's population. And we could not sustain a population the size of the world without them. It requires understanding the role of agricultural machinery in improving labor productivity on farms again you know, without which it would be impossible to sort of feed uh, modern society. It requires understanding the role of refrigeration in the cold chain and how, you know, refrigerating food from the farm to your table, basically, and every place in between the the trains and the trucks and the supermarket and and so forth keeps it fresh and enables us to get the variety and quality of food that we enjoy today. Uh, People should be sort of more aware of and more appreciative of all those things. And they should not only know where their food comes from, they should know where their electricity comes from. They should, you should know where your clothes come from and the roof over your head and the mattress that you sleep on. You should know where the paved roads come from and, you know, and the cars that drive on them or the train that takes you to work or school, etc. So I just think people should look around them and remember and have this have this real awareness and appreciation that this world we live in is n- not at all like this a couple hundred years ago, even a hundred years ago, uh, you know, a hundred or a little over a hundred years ago, you know, most people not only didn't have electric lights, they didn't have toilets in their home or running water, especially, you know, clean, sanitized running water. So this world that we live in is a gift, and it's just far too easy to take it for granted and to fail to appreciate it. But we really sort of owe some gratitude to generations past, and in particular to the scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs who you know, created these discoveries and inventions and brought them to the world. And so industrial literacy is just, you know, it doesn't mean becoming an expert in any of these things necessarily, but it means having a basic appreciation of where this stuff comes from that ultimately I think is necessary to inform all of the conversations that we have today about uh, policy and, and politics and society, you know, a lot of which have to do with industrial topics, right? We debate things like energy and uh, cars and transportation and climate change and industrial agriculture and health and, you know, and so forth. And if you don't have a basic understanding of, you know, what creates the modern standard of living and, and what life would be like without it, then I just think you're honestly, you're not really qualified to even really participate in those discussions. I'm really glad you brought this up because I actually think that you're hitting on what I personally believe is the hardest part of your mission. So first, we are going to get eventually, if we have the time, and I really want to get to the idea of gratitude for our ancestors, because I'm not even sure if it's possible in our modern Western world. We'll talk about English philosopher William Gilbert in a second. But I think the biggest problem I see you encountering, and I'd love to hear about your personal experiences with this. I'll just use like a personal anecdote. One of, I think, Amazon's most invisible and most incredible accomplishments, which is the infrastructure that it's developed around getting packages to pretty much anywhere in the United States and many other countries in 48 hours or less. And the amazing achievements that have had to happen logistically, technologically, et cetera, that's similar to what we were talking about earlier with how the Industrial Revolution was the impetus for a bunch of other innovation. A company like Amazon could only exist really in the last 20, 25 years because of all the infrastructure that was needed to first get it off the ground and then all the innovation that happened on top of that. But after I read this article, I can't remember exactly where I read it, maybe Wired Magazine, I shared it on Twitter. And I was like, man, it really is a miracle, the idea that I can order something and most of the time get it in 24 hours or less. And most of the responses and quote tweets, and it went a little too viral for my liking, was just 
people being absolutely pessimistic and cynical towards the very idea that we should be grateful to Amazon at all and saying that I was, you know, a shill for Bezos and I don't want workers to get paid a fair wage and stories about workers pissing in bottles because they didn't have breaks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, is a lot of what they were saying true and a lot of the points that they were saying about workers' wages and people being overworked accurate and there's documentation proving it? For sure. But my concern is, and I think one of the biggest hurdles for you, Jason, is it doesn't even seem like we can talk about technological advancement or some of the most amazing things we have, like the ability to get fresh fruit and vegetables literally at any time of the year in pretty much any grocery store in America. You can have meat delivered to you that you're never going to have to worry about having to go hunt yourself. And it's not even just one type of meat. It's a dozen different types and it's every different part of the cow. And the things that we have today that we didn't even have 50 years ago in our grocery stores is mind boggling, but it doesn't seem like you can start any conversation around any innovation in our modern world without people immediately going to the climate's falling apart, workers are being abused. Think about all the the pain and suffering that has to happen for these things to be possible. And again, they have good points when they bring that stuff up. But it seems like we live in a culture now where it's impossible to be optimistic about anything because it seems like when people see you being optimistic about something, you're ignoring the tragedy that's around it. So how have we really gotten to this point where it seems like being optimistic or grateful for innovation seems like you're being like a heartless person who's not caring about the little guy. And how do we foster a society or a culture in which people can be both grateful, optimistic, while also not ignoring the stuff that still needs improvement? There was a major attitude shift towards progress in the 20th century. Through the 19th century, especially the late 19th century, as quality of life began to improve very much across the board, really amazing inventions um, were coming out, like the ones that I already described, from the light bulb to the airplane to even, you know, just water sanitation that ended epidemics. People saw the world getting better all around them, and there was just a general belief that through the power of science and technology, we can improve the world and we can improve our lives. Now, that doesn't mean there was no controversy around progress. There always was. I mean, any any new invention or development always had opponents and, and there was always, uh, you know, arguments around it. And people were always concerned about things like poverty and inequality. I mean, these concerns have been around for a long time. But there was just a general, there was a lot more optimism, almost naive optimism um, in many ways, rather than this kind of, you know, reflexive finding the dark lining in every silver cloud, right, that you describe. And then something changed in the 20th century. And I think the real catalyst for this, my hypothesis is the world wars, which were a real shock to the optimists, especially the people who thought that moral and social progress were going hand in hand with technological and scientific progress. The world wars showed that was not the case. And indeed, in the wrong context or the wrong kind of social system, technology actually just made, you know, war more deadly and it made governments more oppressive. And so people started to see in a really horrible, visceral way how science and technology could be used for evil as well as for good. You know, and a lot of other concerns were coming to the fore in the 20th century. Certainly poverty and inequality was one set of concerns. The concept of, quote, the environment was sort of a new idea that people were coming to thinking about it in a systemic way in the in the 20th century. And so I think the old 19th century style kind of optimism and frankly, naive optimism about progress 
sort of fell apart in the 20th century because it didn't really know how to answer these challenges and because I think its confidence had been shaken, especially through the world wars. And so instead, what we got was the rise of these kind of radical social movements based on a deep distrust of technology and of industry. We got the old left, which was very, you know, pro-science and, and industry transforming into the new left, which was very, um, you know, skeptical of it. We got the radical environmentalist movement. I haven't traced all of the different strains of thoughts. And it wasn't only on the left. Progress is criticized uh, from the right uh, as well for being materialistic and decadent and, and so forth. But by the end of the 20th century, actually, I would say definitely by about 1970, or the early 70s, the attitudes had pretty much flipped. And people were more reflexively fearful, skeptical, distrustful of anything that, you know, that smelled like progress. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now about 50 years later is that we've started to reap some of the bitter fruits of that. And I think this technological stagnation that I've talked about over the last 50 years is in part, not necessarily monocausal, but I think it is in part a significant result of just people deciding that maybe progress wasn't even such a good thing to have after all. And so I think when you put out something about Amazon and you get a bunch of reflexive, you know, criticism of it, first, you know, understand that that criticism reflects in part maybe the, you know, the people who follow you or who happen to follow whoever retweeted your thing. I would say second, also just that like the culture on Twitter is not necessarily representative of the culture of the broader world. Generally, I think people, you know, tend to love Amazon and uh, and are very appreciative of it, even though it gets it's been getting a lot of bad press these days. I would also just note generally that like any company that gets big and powerful, like the press starts to turn bad. The press loves the underdog. And then as soon as they become ascendant, you know, they start finding fault. That's just kind of the the nature of the press sees their role as being muckrakers and speaking truth to power and so forth, especially again, in this general milieu of distrusting progress. The fundamental way I see this is that these deep attitudes are something that people learn growing up through education, through art and entertainment, through journalism, through their peers and their parents, and so forth. And they're very deeply entrenched. They take a long time to change. Uh, In fact, in some way, you almost can't change deep philosophic attitudes or worldviews of people after, you know, maybe age 30 or 40 or so that is not not most people, certainly. The best thing you can do, honestly, is to speak to the young, the people who are still forming their worldview and haven't made up their minds yet, whose minds are still a little bit open to new ideas. I think that's often how cultural movements gain traction, gain purchase in in the world. And so I think ultimately, this is the work of a generation or more. This is a very long term, this is a multi-decade project to change people's fundamental attitudes towards uh, towards technology, towards human capability, uh, towards our place in the world, our relationship to nature. All of those are very deep premises that are that are sort of learned early on. But I do think that over the course of a generation or more, it is possible. Yes. I guess I have a two-part question in response to that. I'll break it in two so you can you can answer one at a time. So it seems like one of the challenges that we have in encouraging optimism and kind of kickstarting that cycle where people feel optimistic about technological advancement and the philosophy of progress, which you've mentioned, is that in our age of social media and the internet, where most of our youngest people are, you know, like Gen Z, I think is on the internet more than the millennials were and more than Gen X was and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Every generation in our modern era is more online than the previous. And the internet and especially social media is not wired to reward optimism. It is wired to reward like feel good. Oh, like here's a kitten that was saved by a firefighter in a tree. But it's the cynical, it's the dunking, the can you believe this person forgot about X marginalized group when they were talking about the new advancements in jet technology or whatever, right? 
And again, it's not that those people don't have good points. It's just that it seems like social media is hardwired to reward things that make people angry or frustrated or cynical, and those get the most retweets. And so then it seems like, and I've talked about this with Peter Moskos in regards to, let's say, like police shootings, which are horrendous, right? But one erroneous or malevolent police shooting, which is a horror, will get retweeted or seen tens of thousands of times, which then warps the audience's mind into thinking that it's happening tens of thousands of times. My question for you, Jason, is, How do we foster a society of optimism in which cynicism on social media is rewarded and then magnified to seem like it's everywhere? How do we fight against that system, which seems so deeply entrenched in the internet where most of us spend a lot of our time? I think that the things that you say about social media, the mechanisms that you're talking about are real. I don't think that they're sort of the fundamental reason why, you know, certain ideas spread. I think that as a, as a more fundamental reason, I suspect or I would point to the factors that I mentioned in terms of kind of where people absorb ideas from the culture generally, right? Like what are they taught in school? What do they hear from their peers, their parents? What do they absorb from from art and entertainment or their favorite celebrities? What do they read in the news and, and so forth? I think those kinds of things are, you know, go beyond the particular media that we happen to have in any given age. I do think that media technologies do have a profound effect on how ideas spread and and where they can spread from. But I'm fundamentally optimistic about media in that I think if you look at the history of media, you know, every time we have some new media technology that just makes it easier for more people to get the word out, it very often leads to some kind of social upheaval. I mean, this is even true just the, for the printing press itself. You know, in some way, I think it can be said or at least hypothesized that the printing press really helped bring about the, uh, you know, the Reformation and the religious wars, you know, less than a century after it was introduced. That was an era of major upheaval for Europe. It was an era in which, you know, people were looking around at the ways in which information spreads, and they were very worried about it. And especially the elites and the authorities were very worried about, you know, losing control over important subjects of discourse like politics. I read a fascinating article about, this isn't even printing presses, it's about coffeehouse culture in England in the 1600s, and especially the 1660s through, you know, 80s, which was a very sensitive time in English history where I was very politically uh, sensitive and you had, you know, sort of King Charles and others who were really trying to sort of retain tight control. They were very worried about the coffee houses because the coffee houses were, it's really funny to read this because it's almost exactly the same things that people say about Twitter. And social media in general. So the coffee houses were places where all sorts of classes and every type of person can mix and mingle together, right? They weren't separated into their proper social classes. It was a place where information just sort of flowed very freely and quickly, you know, and even misinformation and fake news, right? They didn't use those terms exactly, but they used different terms that meant, you know, essentially the same thing. And so the elites and the authorities were kind of very concerned about this. In fact, somebody proposed to King Charles that in terms of like what books are printed, we should make sure that like the only books about philosophy and religion and politics, you know, must come from, you know, these people in the universities or these, uh, I forget exactly what was proposed, you know, these special authorities, and they should only be printed in Latin. uh, So only the elites can read them, right? And the only things we should allow to be printed in the common, the vulgar tongues are, you know, maybe just devotionals and prayer books and kind of, you know, stuff that doesn't really matter, just like let the masses have their kind of entertainment. 
And there were points at which they had even, you know, considered banning the, I think Charles considered banning the coffee houses, just like shutting them down, you know, for this. And then after 1688, you got the, the revolution and this angry talk about the coffee houses kind of softened. But it was just really remarkable to see that, you know, even back then, some, what, three, 400 years ago, people were looking around at the ways, new ways that information was getting disseminated and just had all the same criticisms of it. The ultimate result of the Reformation and the religious wars to sort of go back to that spurred by, in part by the printing press, you know, if you were living through the Reformation at that time, you were probably really worried about which side was going to win, right? Is it the Protestants or the Catholics who are going to win these wars and take over Europe? And in the end, you know, it turns out it was neither, right? They sort of fought to a stalemate. And the actual, in my opinion, the big result, the big thing that came out of that long term was not that either the Protestants took over or the Catholics took over. It was actually that both of them ended up with less of a monopoly over Europe than, you know, previously had been held by the Catholic Church. And there was more room for new ideas, new philosophy, free thinkers, even atheists, you know, at a certain point. And we got this explosion of, of philosophy uh, after, you know, kind of in the 1600s, right, with sort of modern thinkers starting with Descartes, and then everybody who who followed him. And, and in my opinion, that was the real legacy of the printing press. So right now, we're in this period where this new form of media has given us, you know, has really accelerated these culture wars, and we're all looking around at like, well, who's going to win the culture? Is it going to be the left or the right? And maybe in the long term, it'll turn out to be neither of them. And the actual legacy of electronic media will have been, you know, just sort of further taking power away from the gatekeepers and the elites and the authorities who've kind of set themselves up and distributing that power more broadly. And I hope allowing good ideas to come from anywhere and maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, take over by force of their being good ideas and ultimately having evidence and logic behind them. We could probably spend an entire episode just talking about the history of coffee, which I find so fascinating. <laughs> I really took for granted on the topic of taking advancements for granted, like what a strong role coffee played in both our moral and technological advancement over the last several hundred years. You mentioned coffee houses, for instance, which was probably one of our first truly egalitarian spaces where people could just come together and talk about ideas and have an excuse to do it. And importantly, the coffee house in many ways was an alternative to the pub. And so at least I took for granted, like how kind of buzzed the average person was for like hundreds of years, because, you know, beer was safer to drink than water. And although beer was considerably lower in alcohol content than our modern beer, like a lot of people were just kind of mildly buzzed throughout the day, which affects cognition. And so if you replace beer with coffee, not only is coffee a stimulant, which actually increases certain ways in which the brain can work and think, but if it's supplanting beer, which dulls the mind, I've read also that in many ways, coffee made us smarter, which allowed us to think of new innovations and make moral progress. And it's just one of those things, um, like you've mentioned in other areas over the course of our history, that I think we can take for granted if we don't reflect on it. Yeah, it's funny. I've heard that too. I don't know how much of an effect it really had switching from alcohol to coffee. But it's true that, you know, King Charles did not consider banning the the pubs and taverns and so forth and, and the alehouses. And might have been partly just because of they had a much longer tradition behind them. But also, I think they had more of a culture. And I don't know how much of this is just tradition and how much of it is the alcohol, but more of a culture of kind of, you know, merriment and just sort of general lighthearted positive, or at least, um you know, they didn't have the intellectual culture of like, let's discuss politics and commerce and so forth, which was the culture that the coffee houses were creating. So I think this is a good place to transition to a 2017 entry in the Roots of Progress site in which you quote an article in The Atlantic entitled, Progress Isn't Natural. 
And I think there's a lot to unpack in this essay. So I'd love to spend some time doing that with you because I think it reveals and explains so much about our society today. I recommend everyone reading it in its entirety, but I want to quote a few paragraphs just to kind of catch our audience up and give us some context. So if we start with paragraph three, which you also quote in your article on the Roots of Progress site, quote, why might people in the past have been hesitant to embrace the idea of progress? The main argument against it was that it implies a disrespect of previous generations, end quote. Then the paragraph later goes on, quote, with the great voyages and the Reformation, Europeans increasingly began to doubt the great classical writings on geography, medicine, astronomy, and physics that had been the main source of wisdom in medieval times. With those doubts came a sense that their own generation knew more and was wiser than those of previous eras. This was a departure from the beliefs of most societies in the past, which were usually given to some measure of, quote, ancestor worship, the belief that all wisdom had been revealed to earlier sages and that to learn anything, one should peruse their writings and find the answer in their pages, end quote. Now, the first thing that jumps to mind in reading something like that, there was something I read years ago, and I wish I could find the source, but it proposed that Silicon Valley could have never started in Europe. And this is kind of the root of my question here, that it could only have started in America where there weren't so many old buildings that no one would have wanted to tear down to make room for all the tech startups, that the very newness of the United States and its lack of a real physical history was instrumental in imagining what we now know as the tech industry in the U.S., and specifically that it only could have started on the West Coast in a state like California, where that belief in creation and reinvention and starting anew and the need to, quote, move fast and break things, which was Facebook's internal motto until 2014, is the strongest. So my question to you, Jason, is how important is one's environment, not only a physical environment, but also potentially as a social one. How important is that in fostering a culture of progress? And could a culture of progress happen anywhere in the world today or only in places where there is less of a sort of respect for the old ways? So I think the environment is certainly very important. Certainly the the cultural environment, I mean, the whole point of that article by Mokir, Joel Mokir was the author of that article in The Atlantic. He's an economic historian. That article was sort of based on a book that he published around the same time called A Culture of Growth, which I recommend. And Mokir's other books are quite good. But the point that he was making there was that a culture's general idea of is progress possible and desirable is going to influence how many people in the culture attempt to make progress, and how the society around them responds when they do. I think ultimately this is at least one major factor that influences whether progress is made and and how fast, right? The more people you have trying to come up with new ideas, experimenting with new things, testing them out, the more encouragement they get, the less that is put up in the way of roadblocks, you know, and obstructions. I just think, you know, in general, the you know, the, the more progress you're going to get. I think saying that it could only have, you know, Silicon Valley could only have happened on the West Coast is, yeah, I mean, it's a little overdetermined. I think you can point to reasons why it did happen there. But, you know, remember that in, you know, the late 1700s and early 1800s, the Silicon Valley of that day was in England, right? Um, and it was in places like Manchester. So I think that at any given time, maybe there's a center or a small, a very small number of centers of where progress is happening. But, you know, it's a little overdetermined to say it could only have happened you know, in this one exact place. I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier in our conversation, which was the idea of gratitude for those who came before us. And I want to pull from the same essay from the Atlantic. First, I want to reiterate a line from a paragraph I read, which was, quote, 
With these doubts came a sense that their own generation knew more and was wiser than those of previous eras, end quote. And I want to read a paragraph that follows it, quote, the respect for classical texts started to fade away in Europe in the 16th century and went into a meltdown in the 17th, when more and more of the ancient certainties were questioned and then found to be incorrect. If the classic authorities could be wrong about so many things, why should they be trusted about anything? The English philosopher William Gilbert, the author of a famous book on magnetism, sounded downright impotent when he wrote uh, in 1600 that he was not going to waste time on, quote, quoting the ancients and the Greeks as our supporters, for neither can paltry Greek argumentation demonstrate the truth more subtly nor Greek terms more effectively, end quote. <laughs> you change a little bit of that language and you can make it sound quite modern. And it seems like, according to the hypothesis put forward in this essay, that progress requires a kind of a loss of respect for the past, for those who came before. It requires an abandonment of what is referenced in the essay as, quote, ancestor worship. But I guess my question to you, Jason, is, is this a true requirement of progress? And if so, is it worth it? To elaborate a little bit more, in America, those who have been here for many generations, who have acculturated to our Western ways, often put their elders in retirement homes, right? Traditionally, in many parts of the world, and really all of the world historically, our oldest lived among us and with us, not only as a measure of thanks for their earlier contributions, but because it was understood that it was beneficial to keep their learned wisdom nearby. Similarly, while the Western, and I think you could say especially American impulse to tear down the past in order to forge a new future, has led to many victories for human equality, it has also recently led many of our newest generations to question whether there is value in anything written not too long ago, because it, as it may be in their words, too old, too white, and too male, right? Now, this isn't a far cry from that sentiment put forth by William Gilbert in 1600. So you could say Gen Z is but the newest part of a long pedigree of rebellion. My main question is something that I've been thinking about a lot in preparation for this interview is, does progress always require us to light the past on fire? And is there a way to preserve and even cherish the knowledge of our ancestors, living or dead, while continuing to push forward? I don't think we have to light the past on fire, or you know, or tear it down. So I actually I disagree with the statement of Mokir, depending on how it's interpreted. I disagree that progress implies disrespect of past generations. Now, I think that may have been how people in the 1600s saw it, right? They might have seen a conflict between respect for past generations and progress. But I actually think those things can be reconciled, ultimately, if we take not a static, but a dynamic view of knowledge and of society, right? So, you know, progress, the very word, the very concept is about change. It means it has a direction, right? Progress implies change and, and motion. And so, if we take the view that we are never done, we are never at utopia where we can just sort of statically stop, but that we are always moving forward, we are always looking for something better, and we're always going to improve on what we've had, then I think we can have a lot of respect for the accomplishments of the past, while at the same time respecting them enough not to stick with it forever, right? Not to take the past as some sort of static point that will never move beyond, but rather as a foundation that we can build on and, and go beyond. I don't think that Einstein was disrespecting Newton when he came up with a new theory that, you know, that predicted different things in certain uh, in certain contexts. I don't think that 
you know, the inventors of the internal combustion engine were disrespecting Thomas Newcomen and James Watt for their work on the steam engine, right? Uh, I don't think Thomas Edison in inventing the light bulb was disrespecting, you know, the users of candles and oil lamps in the past, right? They're just coming up with something new and better. And so I have a ton of respect for people who created the things in the past, even things that are obsolete. You know, the Bessemer process for making steel was an absolute revolution. It led to cheap steel. But it's obsolete now. We don't use it anymore. We have better things. And I don't think that implies disrespect of Bessemer. I think we can look back and sort of understand uh, Bessemer's accomplishment in his time and have a ton of respect for that and gratitude for it, even understanding that we've moved beyond it, you know, because it was a rung in a ladder that we had to climb. It was a, you know, one story in a, in a structure that we are constructing ever higher and higher. So, you know, that's ultimately my resolution. Yeah, let's have respect for the past, but let's also respect it enough not to stay there forever, which I think you know, anyone in the past who believed in progress would not want us to stay with what they had come up with forever. They would want us to build on top of it and to move beyond. This sort of reminds me of a quote by Mark Twain. Perhaps you're familiar with it. He says, quote, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years, end quote. And I love that quote, because Obviously, his old man hadn't gotten any smarter. It was Mark Twain who, as he aged, realized the wisdom that his father had that he had taken for granted when he was younger. And I guess my brief follow-up question to you, Jason, is how do we prevent the sort of culture that was rampant in some parts of Europe in the 1600s? And I think there were upsides to this sort of realization, right? That, oh, we've had so much reverence for the ancients over these however many centuries that we haven't really been focusing on progress, that we haven't realized that we can break out of this form of thinking and go our own way, which I think is extremely important, right? How do we foster an environment in which we can understand, okay, there are ways in which our ancestors, however that's defined, right? Cultural ancestors, social ancestors, literal ancestors, there were many ways in which they were right and which we stand on their shoulders, but that doesn't mean we have to discard them entirely because they were wrong about certain things, either technologically wrong, morally wrong, etc. How do we do that balancing act? Because I think that that balancing act in and of itself is very important in forging a vision of optimism, which I think is so key to your work. I do think that the key to it is having this dynamic view of knowledge and society and progress that we are just always moving forward. And so those thinkers in the 1600s, I think they were reacting against a long tradition of deferring to authority. And authority was often some ancient authority, whether it was Aristotle or Ptolemy or Galen or, or whoever. It was tough to say anything that contradicted what they had said or to point out where they may have made an error or, you know, to, it was tough to make progress. And so I think a number of thinkers of that era were just rebelling against that. And they were saying, no, I'm not going to start off by quoting the Greeks. I have something new and different and better. You know, we don't have nearly so much of that uh, left around anymore, right? We don't think that we have to start off, you know, our scientific papers by quoting Certainly not by quoting the ancient Greeks, right? I don't know. Maybe some scientists would argue that they feel they have to, I don't know, cite previous work uh, too much or, or, you know, or something. But like in general, we're not nearly at that point that we used to be. I think it's just this understanding that we can respect the past while at the same time, you know, moving beyond it and that there's just simply no contradiction there. You know, and I think fundamentally, how do we really get that into our heads? Well, my answer to that is actually the same as how do we do something that I talked about earlier, which is how do we build this culture that's not so fearful and distrustful of progress? Ultimately, it's history. 
learn the history, learn where we came from, learn how we got here, learn what the world used to be like, and how poor we used to be, and how much infrastructure we lacked, and how much people suffered, and how ignorant people used to be, and what they didn't know, and what they assumed or took for granted. And just learn how far we've come in our knowledge, in our infrastructure, in our wealth, in our health and comfort, in our ability to live great lives, and even, you know, in many ways in morality and society, right? Progress is a little bit harder to see there, but in the last 250 years, we have largely replaced monarchy with democratic republics. We have ended slavery in almost all of the world, and we've come a long way in terms of equal rights for women around the world and, you know, many, many other accomplishments. So, If you just learn that history, I think you'll have a great appreciation for this dynamic nature of humanity and follow that arrow where it points. And I think it'll point to a better future. Before we get to the final question, I want to loop back to something we discussed a bit earlier, the idea of uh, stagnation. You've talked about the importance of creating a world where young people see progress as a meaningful career. And I think if asked a decent chunk of young people would say that they do see progress as a meaningful career, but perhaps not in a way that's aligned with your vision. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about where there might be some daylight between how they view progress and how you might view it. I can't remember who said it. I was looking for this YouTube video for, God, way too much time last night in preparation for this. But someone said on a video that went viral, they were lamenting that many of our greatest young minds, instead of pursuing the science of space travel or disease mitigation or climate salvation, instead they were flocking to Silicon Valley to make the next Facebook or work on the current one. You touch on this in your essay about technological stagnation, which you mentioned earlier. Why do you think so many of our great minds seem to be focusing on what are comparatively small potatoes, incrementally more addictive social media apps? And how can we best enable the next generation to redefine progress in a way that helps to break that stagnation? Before I started doing the Roots of Progress full-time, you know, my career was actually in Silicon Valley. Um, my background's in computer science and software engineering. I was a tech startup founder. You know, I spent almost 20 years in that industry. So I actually know it pretty well. I would push back on this a little bit. I mean, there's a couple of things. So first, because of the whole technological stagnation sort of thing that we talked about before, computers and the internet is where a lot of the innovation is happening. So why are the best minds flocking to there? It's because it's where the exciting frontier is. Why are they not going into nuclear engineering? Well, again, it's because that industry, you know, basically stagnated. And so there's just, it's not that zero really intelligent, ambitious people have gone into nuclear. Fortunately, a few have, but especially recently. But the majority of them, especially in the last two decades, have more gone into, you know, things like computers and the internet and finance and so forth. It's just, it's where the action is happening. That's one thing. And I would push back on this idea that they're working on trivial problems. I think creating the internet and creating social media has been huge. It's been transformative for society. People these days are focusing a lot on the the problems that it's caused, but I also think it's created an enormous amount of value and done a lot of good. Even advertising, I'll defend here. You know, there's this classic line of, uh, I saw the best minds of my generation figuring out how to make people click on ads. Figuring out how to make people click on ads is important. You know, everybody hates advertising until they, you know, lose their dog or sell their car or or start a, a new business. And new businesses and new products absolutely depend on advertising. And uh, targeted advertising, I think, is actually the best form of advertising because it's the most efficient. It's the most relevant to you. It's the most likely to actually get you a thing that matters to you and could improve your life. And it's a way to make good use of people's attention rather than wasting their attention on stuff that's totally irrelevant to them. You know, so I think that matters. 
However, I will also say that these days, I don't think the best minds uh, are going into social media anymore. Social media is old now. It's what? It's like 15 years old. And it's kind of started to mature. And so a lot of the energy in Silicon Valley today is around artificial intelligence, including things like self-driving cars. And it's around cryptocurrency and everything that's built on that. I think those things are pretty impactful and meaningful. And even though we don't know exactly where they're going, it's not as if everybody's just continuing to optimize the last 10th or 100th of a percent of improvement efficiency out of the ad business, a lot of folks are flocking to the next frontier. Well, if I may, I want to try and resolve what I perceive, and I might be incorrectly perceiving this, is a kind of tension between the idea of there being stagnation, which I think in one of your essays, you came around to agreeing that there is a kind of technological stagnation happening with what you're saying now. I'm only pushing back a little bit because I want to hear more about your thoughts on this. We talked earlier in the conversation about, I was playing devil's advocate and saying, hey, like maybe there is a lot of progress happening. We're looking at the ocean instead of the land, right? Like maybe there is a lot of progress happening on the internet and that's our new infrastructure. And maybe there isn't technological stagnation happening after all. We're just looking in the wrong place, quote unquote. And I think you rightly pushed back against that, pointing to the major differences between how our society progressed between 1870 and 1920, and then again in the 50s and 60s, and comparing them to today. I want to try and find a a synergy or a harmony between that answer that you gave earlier and the answer you're giving now about how there is a lot of technological progress happening online, whether it's through more efficiently serving ads or social media advancements, etc. How can we bring together what seems to be a kind of tension that I think is real that exists between those who think, yes, there is technological stagnation happening and you can see it in things like GDP and TFP and actually no, there might not be a lot of technological stagnation happening. It just depends on where you look. Stagnation is relative, and the choice of the term stagnation is unfortunate because it leads to confusion. It sounds as if it means stagnation, as if progress has completely stalled out and gone to zero, like we're making zero progress. That's not what it means. It just refers to a relative slowdown and can be a slowdown that is not uniform across the board. I think that's the the key here. So there's been basically no stagnation in digital technologies. Those have continued to rocket ahead. So if you just look at the digital technologies, the computers and the internet and everything based on that, you're not going to see stagnation there because there's a lot of progress happening. Um, where you see it is, is in the other parts of the economy. And like you might say, well, maybe progress only happens in one place at a time. Maybe progress is like a fire hose. We point it over here, then we point it over there. A different part of the economy is always the thing where lots of progress is happening and, and other parts are not. That was something that I thought was maybe the case until I looked at the late 19th century and I realized, hey, it's possible to have like five fire hoses going at once and covering the entire, you know, across the board. You know, that's how I see it. It's stagnation is relative, it's partial, it's uneven. And so I think we're having lots of progress in digital technologies, and I would love, I'm very happy with the pace of progress in computers and the internet and everything based on it, but I would just love to see the same progress in energy, in transportation, in manufacturing, in construction, and so forth, and, and ultimately in health, which maybe we're on the, the brink of if we have a, a real revolution in biotech and genetics in, in the coming decades. If we saw those things all across the board, right, if we actually get a renaissance in nuclear technologies, as there are some startups trying to create now. And if we get a renaissance in supersonic air travel, as some startups like Boom Technologies are, are trying to create now, and if we get a revolution in health and, you know, if we cure cancer or something through uh, genetic engineering, and we start to see things across the board like this, you know, then I think maybe we can say that we're, we're actually seeing progress in every area of the economy again, and not just in a narrow sphere. I love that answer. 
Before we get to the final question, anyone who checks out the Roots of Progress website will understand the almost insurmountable task that I had in prepping for this conversation because, Jason, you have written so much on this topic. It was like a Sophie's Choice figuring out which essays of yours I was going to like touch on and which subjects we were going to discuss because in another world, we could have this conversation for eight hours and we still wouldn't really be scratching the surface of the work that you've done over the last several years. I mean, we could have talked about the progress community, progress as a moral imperative, the need for progress studies as a field of study in universities and high schools. So for the final question, and you've touched on this a bit, When it comes to forwarding an optimistic future that is focused on a philosophy of progress, the most actionable steps over the next two or three years, in your opinion, Jason, where do we go next? Well, the next two or three years is pretty short term when you're you're thinking about these things. Even thinking about something that is relatively narrow, like, you know, start a new company focused on longevity technology or something, right? That would be a great thing for progress, but that's not going to pay off in two or three years. I'm a little hard-pressed to come up with something that would make a significant difference in the next um, two or three years. You might get down to policy changes, uh, and for that, I'll just point you to uh, an interesting new policy think tank that just launched a few days ago, uh, given when we're recording this, which is called the Institute for Progress, and they have some interesting ideas out. So maybe in two or three years, there are some short-term things to do along those lines. I mean, I guess the other thing you could do within that span of time is you could create a real step forward that would pay off over the longer term. And one thing that occurs to me there is the history of progress really needs to be taught in school. It tends to fall between the cracks of history and science classes, and I think there should be more focus on it. I have created a high school curriculum that covers the history of technology and how industrial civilization was created. I created this uh, for a private high school, the Academy of Thought and Industry, that was actually uh, that is actually run by a couple of folks that you've had on the podcast earlier. That's Ray Gurn and Matt Bateman. And so, getting that high school curriculum out there more broadly and getting that taught at a lot more schools, you know, is something I think that could be done within the next couple of years. But when it would really pay off is in the coming decades as those high school students graduate and have you know a new outlook on the world. I'm going to add a PS to this question because. I agree with you that two or three years isn't a lot of time. So I'm going to focus it more on the personal. As we've talked about, you used to have a full-time career in the tech space and the Roots of Progress originally started, in your words, it's not much more than a blog, not too long ago, 2017 or so. But now it's your full-time job and it's a nonprofit. So in the next several years, just for you, in terms of what you want to do with Roots of Progress and the progress you want to make for your organization... Where do you see it going next? And where do you, Jason, want to go next with that program? So one major goal of mine in the next couple of years is I'm writing a book. Working title right now is The Story of Industrial Civilization Towards a New Philosophy of Progress for the 21st Century. I hope by now you can sort of uh, understand what that you know what that title means and what the contents will be. It is going to tell about the major discoveries and inventions that gave us our standard of living, and it will spend a few chapters at the end. You know, about the last quarter of the book will be the philosophy of what does this mean? Is progress actually good? Can progress continue? And and what should we as a society do about it? So that is my my biggest goal for the next couple of years is to finish that book and get it out there. 
Some other things that the new nonprofit organization is going to be focused on, a lot of it is community building. We are working on launching an online home for the Progress community. A working name for it is the Progress Forum. And so that'll be a place where people can write long-form essays and discuss. And I hope it'll lead to a lot of great intellectual conversation and good intellectual community forming. We're also going to be um, sponsoring more in-person events, uh, meetups and conferences and so forth. And then the other thing I, I hope to do, and this is sort of to be announced, but I would like to find ways for us to be able to sponsor, perhaps through grants, fellowships, or similar uh, mechanisms, other intellectuals and creatives who want to do work in progress studies and the philosophy of progress. So taking it beyond just me and my work and, and creating a whole um, community or, or ecosystem of intellectuals and creatives who are doing this work. So stay tuned for you know more announcements about those programs. We will. And as we wrap up, I think a lot of people can relate to this, that oftentimes the world can feel very chaotic and even meaningless at points because it seems like things are just randomly happening. There is a large focus on kind of a doom and gloom idea of the future, environmental catastrophe. We can't save the world unless we do X, Y, Z in the next 10 or so years. There's no point in having children because why would we want to birth children into such a terrible world that might collapse? So I think that there is such a real and I would even say dire need for optimism, for needing to feel good, to needing to believe in the possibility of a better world, and that there will be a world left for our children, our grandchildren, and their grandchildren. So I can't imagine it was easy not too long ago to make that leap from doing this as a side project to leaving behind a well-established career and doing this full-time. And I think you're doing really important work and really necessary work we have to believe in our future in order to build it. So I just want to say not only thank you for your time today and answering my questions, but thank you for the work that you're doing. And I really hope you succeed because we need more people like you in the world. Well, thank you very much for that compliment, for having me on and for this great conversation. Tune in next week for a conversation with Howard University professor and founder of the Living Water School, Dr. Anika Prather. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.